I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, this is James Ball. I write every week in the New European on what's happening behind the scenes in Westminster and across the world. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European Podcast. It's a British eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European. People like me, Steve Anglesey. How are you? We're recording this early. I'm, I'm moving house this week, so apologies because this podcast doesn't contain much analysis of the cabinet reshuffle, but just to catch you up if you've missed it, some dreadful blokes got sacked. They've been replaced by some dreadful blokes and dreadful women. A a bloke who was dreadful at one job is now going to be dreadful at three jobs. Some dreadful women and blokes did keep their jobs. Some moving sideways were largely dreadful, uh, and a lot of disappointed Tory MPs are still on or new to the backbenches, Uh, where they'll be dreadful. But this podcast won't be dreadful because in a moment I'll be joined by the writer and journalist John Kampfner. He's the European editor of The New European. He'll be taking us through what Germany's thinking as it faces up to life without Angela Merkel, whose 16 years as Chancellor will end uh, soon after the elections on September 26th. Or will they? Will there be a lot of horse trading? Will she be in for a while yet? The New European's got an excellent new website. Why not check it out at theneweuropean.co.uk and enjoy more from The New European by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. And we've got an excellent new podcast you can listen to after this one too. Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives tells the life stories of amazing Europeans in short 10-minute bursts. It's fantastic. It's available wherever you got this podcast. So coming up, John Kampfner on Germany after Merkel. But first... I don't know whether this is a psychological side effect of doing this job for so long, but I'm beginning to see almost everything as a metaphor for Brexit now. British HGV drivers no longer having to reverse in their driving test. It's a metaphor for Brexit. We can't go back. The Ryder Cup is coming up. That started off being the USA versus Great Britain, but Great Britain kept losing on its own. So eventually we had to get together with Europe in order to win. It's a metaphor for Brexit. There was that time that I bought a load of fancy ingredients for a ragu. I spent loads of money on meat and then I got it all home and I realised I didn't have any pasta. It's a metaphor for Brexit. Even things that are directly about Brexit now seem to me to be a metaphor for Brexit. Brexiteers have been cheering this week about the return of the crown mark on pint glasses. You could always keep a crown mark on pint glasses if you really wanted to. But in my one of my local pubs, three of the most popular beers are, are off at the moment, partly because of Brexit. 
you know, they can't be served in a crown pint glass because they don't exist. It's a metaphor for Brexit. Or is it just a forgotten verse from Ironic by Alanis Morissette? I can't decide. And then I read this headline in The Guardian. Butterflies released in Finland contained parasitic wasps with more wasps inside. And what has happened there is that lots of caterpillars have been shipped to a tiny island in Finland so scientists could study how butterflies spread when they emerged uh, from, the, from the caterpillars. But some of the caterpillars contained parasitic wasps, which burst alien style from the caterpillar before it could pupate. And some of the parasitic wasps contained an even tinier parasitic wasp, which killed the bigger parasitic wasp around the same time as the bigger parasitic wasp kills the caterpillar. And then it emerges 10 days later from the caterpillar's carcass. So no butterflies, just deadly parasitic wasps and even tinier and even more deadly parasitic wasps. It's definitely a metaphor for Brexit. Now, live from Germany, I'm delighted to be joined by our European editor, John Kampfner, whose piece about the impending departure of Angela Merkel is part of a special Germany issue of the New European. John, welcome to the podcast. Where, whereabouts in Germany are you? Hi there, Steve. I'm in Berlin. Just got here having been in Cologne for a day and a bit, including um, my uh, first appearance on German daytime TV. Uh, what is the German for Mr. Motivator and how, how <laughs> did you fit into the Lycra? How, how was that for you? Well, talking of clothing, actually, I mean, I'd, I'd sort of prepped and trying to work out sort of the things, all the sort of serious things, uh, but in a funny way, I was going to say, but the last thing they did was they played um, uh, a video of all the celebrities arriving at the Met Ball uh, in New York and asked me to comment on the on the various dresses. And I thought, oh, my God, this is one of those sort of telly car crash moments. Um, but I, um, I simply said in my rather hapless German, um, I don't think I would be very good trying one of those on. And that just seemed to sort of shut them up and end the sequence. So I got out of there alive marvelous tax the tax the rich um <laughs> exactly. as, uh, i didn't see on nadine doris's uh clothing as she entered uh, 10 downing street have you seen anything about the, the the reshuffle by the way yeah i mean it's more rural britannia really we've got liz truss one of those remainers who's become more brexiteers than more brexiting than the brexiteers Yes. Um, the lovely Dominic Raab, who was in for the chop, and then he threw his toys out of the ministerial pram and he got promoted to deputy prime minister. So the um, smack of firm and serious leadership is very much um, alive and well in Britain. Uh, let's talk about serious leadership in um, in Germany. When we see, I mean, long long lasting prime ministers here, when by the time they, they go, Thatcher, Blair. I mean, the country's generally had enough of them, haven't they? It's not the same. Is it the same with Angela Merkel? Well, it's sort of yes, but, uh, or as the Germans would say, ja, aber. Um, it's, they had already had enough of her before the pandemic. Right. Um, there was a lot of stuff for the end of 2018, 2019, into 2019, even into 2020, sort of saying um, that it's time for her to go. She only really stood in 2017 because she felt she ought to because of the spectre of Donald Trump and Brexit and somebody needed to show a reasonable 
face for democracy around the world. And rumour had it that Barack Obama was one of those persuading her to stay on. She'd already felt then that she'd done enough and she had already done 12 years. The country sort of fell out of love with her. Then she did incredibly well in the first phase of um, corona uh, virus and put the country at ease and compared to bumbling Britain and other countries, it was an absolute paragon. Then it all went wrong again with the vaccines, although the Germans are pretty much, and the whole all the Europeans have pretty much caught up with the Brits and in fact overtaken them. But still, I mean, they're, they're sort of split. They know they know she ought to go um, and her time is up. They know that she desperately wants to go. But at the same time, they are going to miss her hugely. And this campaign has managed to be both incredibly exciting and unpredictable but also quite alarming for Germans as well when they look at the prospect of any of the three main candidates for Chancellor squaring off against each other. They think, oh, God, can't we have Mutti back? Mm. I mean, we've got she's, she's held in extremely high regard by our readers, by the way. There's, I've got some messages here. Abby, Abby Thatcher-Heitman uh, says she's compassionate, competent and coherent, totally unlike any of today's leaders in uh, in Britain. Craig Gersharta says Angela Merkel is the world states uh, person of the 21st century role model for all post-war world leaders. Ilsa Jane Towler says she is impressive, kind and a strategic thinker. Uh, Germans are lucky to have her instead of the mendacious, incompetent drones we're saddled with. I mean... Where do you think she ranks among German chancellors or West German chancellors, I guess? And what do you think are her moments of regret alongside obvious her obvious achievements? Well, it must be said, Steve, that not everybody. I mean, I agree with what those readers have said. Um, and my book is very much reflecting a sense, even though it criticises Merkel's Germany a lot, many, many weaknesses uh, that do need to be addressed and that she failed to address them. She had this tendency to kick the can down the road. But I've always been an incredible fan. But in Berlin, you know, their version of the Westminster village, the Berlin bubble, there's it's quite fashionable to slag her off. And certainly among foreign correspondents and or former foreign correspondents, I was reading Roger Boyes in the Times talking about how he had, uh, how she had weakened Germany and damaged the European Union, uh, notwithstanding her faults. I just completely don't see it like that. Um, she, her biggest regrets would be, I think, her failure to come to terms uh, with a more radical uh, approach to climate change. And she said that in her last uh, New Year's address that uh, she was she used to be known as the climate chancellor and she was really hot on renewable energy and Germany was going great guns. And then after the Fukushima uh, nuclear accident, she completely panicked and brought forward Germany's decommissioning of, of, of nuclear plants. So if you compare that with France, which has got which is hugely reliant on nuclear and Britain to a certain extent as well, it just seemed to be completely crazy politics or completely crazy environmental politics, um, because what it was doing was extending Germany's coal industry and, and, and damaging all our uh, attempts to, to deal with the climate crisis. And I think she realises that. I think she also realises that 
she didn't properly explain the refugee policy, but I regard that as an incredible success. And she didn't also deal with, as I said before, some of this infrastructure stuff, the digitalization of yes. Germany. It's incredibly old-fashioned, this this place. I mean, broadband speeds, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's true, are slower than Albania's. Uh, wherever you go, you always get cut out on, on your mobile uh, walking around any street in Berlin or, or, or any other cities. It's way behind the times. Use of credit cards, contactless, is pretty terrible. It just feels very old-fashioned, and it needs someone to really turn this country around. But whenever people regard it as the sick man of Europe, or there's such a tendency to write Germany off, it always seems to catch up in the end. We've, I mean, we've we've heard about this on the, this podcast before. The infrastructure problems. Tanik Cock, uh, I think, was talking about yeah. data being exchanged during the coronavirus. Uh, crisis, the heat of the, the the worst of the coronavirus crisis, data being exchanged over fax machines, which is just uh, just remarkable. Was she? Did she do enough for women? I mean, we've had two female leaders in in this country who are perceived as not really having done much for women, despite Theresa May's t shirt. Clearly, she Angela Merkel's a feminist. Did she? What did she achieve for women? Not a whole lot, I would say, feminists would say, but I also think that that's a slightly myopic um, approach to things. She was asked this, she's been, she's asked this all the time, and her standard line is, I'm Chancellor for all Germans, female and male. I think there's a subliminal point, which is I, Merkel, lead by example. And I don't brook any nonsense from anybody, usually men, usually sort of mansplaining um, uh Chancellor Cole, her predecessor, who she knifed in the back, really, to get the top job around the millennium. He used to call her my girl. Um, And she didn't sort of make a symbolic, sort of classically feminist riposte to that. She just bit her lip. And when the moment came, she struck back. And that's always the way with her. And that's the remarkable thing about her. She is surrounded by aggressive and pretty much unpleasant men. You can see, I'm talking about the international arena, you can see from her body language what she thought of Donald Trump, Mm. what she thinks of Boris Johnson, what she thinks of Vladimir Putin and others. There's just the way somehow she sort of draws in her shoulders and she purses her lips, but she almost never says anything. What about the people who have uh, who have worked under her then i mean there's there's, there's the, the saying that grass doesn't grow under a heavy roller and we've certainly seen the results of that here with you know in, in the the days after in the years after tony blair and, and gordon brown they were heavy rollers a dearth of you know conservative thought after thatcher post thatcher has it been hard to flourish below merkel and does that explain why armin laschet is doing so badly in this election yeah, I think it does. And it's, as you've just pointed out, it's a mark of a particularly strong leader that quite often they can't manage their succession. You might also maybe wonder, do they want to manage their mm. succession? Because it's the Alex Ferguson syndrome. You know, the, the better you are, the more hapless is your successor, the better history will uh, look upon you in comparison with others. And There's been a sort of wafting around by Merkel uh, above the fray during this campaign. She made one parliamentary speech, which may turn out to be her last, in which she 
um, accused the Social Democrat Olaf Scholz, who's most likely to become Chancellor, of wanting perhaps to do a deal with the fringe left-wing party, Die Linke, and she's, she was heckled in Parliament. You slightly got the impression she was going through the motions trying to defend Laschet and her own party. Most of the time, she's traveling the world on this extended farewell tour. She was in Belgrade and in Tirana for a couple of days and wonder, you know, I mean, it's all great, but I mean, she's literally just sort of flying around the world. Or she's in places like Dresden with the Dutch prime minister opening an exhibition of Vermeer's paintings. Um, and you just get a sense that this is a, a very long farewell tour. Actually, it's going to be really interesting to see what she does afterwards. She's going to keep quiet for a long while. She's passionate about the arts. I wouldn't be surprised if she doesn't do something in the cultural scene. But I'm not one of those who subscribes to the view that that's the end of her um, in public life. She'll certainly take a back seat for a, a few years, but I don't know, watch out for a future UN general, uh, a UN uh, general secretary or NATO or another big job. I think somehow uh, she'll get bored just um, listening to classical music, going to Bayreuth and, and tending to her garden. And the, and the appeal of, of Olaf Scholz then, is, is he re being rewarded for being like Merkel or not being Laschet or, or for handing out support during the pandemic as the finance minister? Or is, or is Germany actually moving towards the left? A bit of all of the above, above but not, I would think, um, moving towards the left. He has rather bizarrely tried to make himself, even though he belongs to another party, see, uh, be seen as Merkel's successor, even borrowing some of her phrases he's really not had to do very much he's watched his two main rivals self-implode um Laschet who has the extraordinary ability to be a clown like Boris Johnson without his humor or arguably his charisma has been an absolute disappointment on this campaign I think there's a, a big element of I told you so across the the CDU party he was the safety first candidate and yet he wasn't very safe at all he was just a pretty hapless figure and assuming he doesn't win which seems a very very strong assumption now I think that would be the last we hear from him on the national stage and Lena Baerbock I think that's a little bit more complicated the Greens candidate yes she's made some mistakes there's some embellishing of a CV a bit of cut and pasting of what seems to be a pretty uh, useless political book that she wrote uh, but all fairly avoidable small-scale stuff and the, pre the press has absolutely gone after her arguably is there an element of misogyny in that but the Greens, if they had been had a half-decent backroom team, should have been able to sort that out. And she's gone from what seemed pretty unrealistic, mid-20s, 25 26% polling, to struggling to get above 15%. That's been a huge disappointment. And all Schultz has had to do is say nothing and mm. do nothing. I was watching a TV thing last night where he was in front of a studio audience and that kind of classic sort of, you know, carefully selected questions, a bit like sort of question time. And he literally said nothing. To everybody, he just sort of clasped his hands and said, absolutely, I promise you, I'll be listening to you very carefully and I understand your pain and I understand your concerns. 
you know, one minute it was uh, an old retiree from the old GDR, a classic sort of, you imagine if GB News was on in Germany, he'd be watching that, um, talking about um, why um, a particular type of schnitzel um, made with paprika, which used to be called um, gypsy schnitzel, and isn't anymore because the term is, is regarded as politically incorrect. This man said, I want my gypsy schnitzel back. And um, uh, Schultz was saying, well, absolutely, you have your right to make your complaint, but just at the same time, the others, everybody else has their right to want to rename it if they want to. Next minute, there was a trans activist uh, making uh, particular complaints. Next minute, there was an Afghan vet and he pretty much gave the same answer to everybody. So he's Mr. Well, he's all things. He's all things to to all people. Then it it it, uh, it sounds like. I mean, let's let's end with where where this leaves Germany and the EU, because clearly, you know, Angela Merkel has has helped, which has been a substantial figure, hasn't she? She's held the EU together. She's you know her, her bravery over the refugees was was uh, was was something to behold. She's led the EU through financial crises but I, I, I mean I'm, I'm guessing that Germans are feel ambivalent about the EU don't they Alan Posner in Devel, from Develt has written in this issue of the New European that, that your piece is in he says Germans feel the EU is a racket designed to make Germany pay for other countries lavish welfare states Germans feel the European Central Bank has destroyed their savings with a policy of cheap money aimed at spendthrift southerners and that the Brits have left them alone to manage a union that's falling apart at the seams. Where does this leave Germany and the EU? I mean, Alan is right in that respect, and that led to the very hard line that Germany took with Greece over the debt mm. crisis a decade ago, and Varoufakis getting very angry, and there were there was graffiti all over Athens and other Greek cities of Angela Merkel with a Hitler moustache, uh, which she found very painful unsurprisingly, um, and let it be known, which is more surprising, as I said, because she doesn't um, as a rule. But yes, they do feel, I mean, that said, you know, there is no Dexit or Gexit, um, uh, any sensibility of that whatsoever in Germany. It is basically how do we make the European Union work better at the heart of it now that the Brits have gone and they lament the Brits' uh, departure although they've got over it, they lament it because they think rightly that, that they and the, the Germans and the Brits were the closest aligned. The relationship with France therefore becomes ever, ever more important. Assuming Macron wins next April, which I think is a working assumption, but you can't ever be sure nowadays, then he will be temporarily at least the top dog. And just what kind of EU will arise from that is absolutely central to Germany's role. Merkel did not have a particularly strong uh, relationship with Macron. And Schultz, or if it had been Lachette, would have been an absolute beeline. They've all said, all the candidates said, first trip after the election, when whoever becomes chancellor, does become chancellor, will be to Paris. It's absolutely central. Not just that they get on better in terms of body language and the way they talk to each other, but that they can produce a common vision for the European Union, because at the moment it feels very much as if it's fraying. And, and then just finally, uh, how, how does it work? The election's on the, on the 26th, but 
you know, Olaf isn't going to be moving in on the, the 27th, I'm guessing. Uh, absolutely not. You could bet a certain amount of money that Merkel might still be there at Christmas. Wow. Um, I'm not much, well, and she doesn't want to hang on. Although, actually, if she makes it to December the 17th, she will be the longest serving chancellor in post war German history. Helmut Kohl is still there by a few days, but I, I don't think that's enough of a reason for her to want to stay any longer. Last time, 2017, the coalition negotiations lasted six months, but it didn't seem to matter that much because she was already chancellor uh, and it was just sort of working on autopilot. But no, it completely depends not just on the order of the parties, but the weight of the parties, which parties get above, and I won't get too techie here, uh, get above or below the 5% threshold If it's going to be a three-party coalition, which there hasn't been before at national level, then the negotiations are going to be incredibly complicated. But I think the working assumption is that it will be the Social Democrats with Olaf Scholz um, alongside the Greens with Annalena Baerbock, and if they need to, and they probably will need to, with the Liberal Party, which has done quite well recently and is just above somewhere between 10, 12, 13%. But that's going to be really complicated because the Greens want to increase taxation for environmental and other reasons, and the Liberals absolutely are the low-tax party. So there's going to be a lot of difficult and tortuous, and in the manner of German politics, it manages to be both incredibly exciting and also quite dull at the same time. Well, we will look, we will share the excitement and the boredom with you uh, in future episodes of this, uh, this podcast. Thank you so much, John Kampfner, European editor of The New European. Thanks a lot, John. Pleasure, Steve. And you can read John's thoughts on the German election and life after Angela Merkel in our special Germany edition of The New European. To enjoy more from The New European, subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. John Kampfner there. And finally, it's the Hall of Shame, our home for preening politicians, pompous pundits, things that annoy me generally. Who's in the Hall of Shame uh, this week? Well, Kevin Williamson must be in the Hall of Shame, must need more time to spend with his tarantula. Uh, Sajid Javid is in the Hall of Fame. He told Sky News it was okay for Tory MPs not to wear masks in the cramped cabinet room or in the Commons chamber because they're not strangers. He said they're not, they can, it's all right if they don't wear masks, they're not strangers. He's not even been health secretary three months and he's already uncovered scientific proof that you can't catch COVID from your mates. Amazing. It's another one in the eye for the so-called experts. Boris Johnson is in the hall of shame again. I'm very sorry that Boris Johnson's mum has died. It's an awful thing as anyone who has lost a parent will know. I'm also sorry that Boris Johnson has gone to a 500 quid a head Tory donor lunch and said, I said last year, we're the Saudi Arabia of wind, probably the Saudi Arabia of penal policy under our wonderful Home Secretary. We all like a joke, but maybe not a joke about a country that's beheading and torturing people for activism, homosexuality and adultery. You're the Prime Minister, Boris, you know, you're not Jeremy Clarkson doing your Ooh, I bet that one gets me in trouble face. It's also worth noting that when asked when supermarket shortages would end, Boris Johnson's team predicted that things would be normal by the end of the year. Uh, While the head of the Food and Drink Federation, Ian Wright, reckons that absences of some goods are going to be permanent. So on one hand, we've got 
Boris Johnson and his team saying that it'll all be over by Christmas. And on the other hand, we've got the head of the Food and Drink Federation saying some goods will be absent permanently. It's, I wonder whose judgment we should trust. Is it the well-informed expert or is it Boris Johnson? Who knows? Um, Alak, Gad, Harumph, it's Anne Widdicombe Corner, the magical time of the week when I read out the most ridiculous bits from Anne Widdicombe's ridiculous column in the Ridiculous Daily Express. This week, Anne Widdicombe is talking about the black and white minstrels. If you don't know what the black and white minstrels were, lucky you. It was a BBC variety show uh, in which white men in blackface sang minstrel songs. And shamefully, it ran on the BBC for 20 years until 1978. 1978. Anne uh, is writing about woke nitwits and woke nonsense this week. And she writes this. Those of us who sang along to the black and white minstrels had no idea that 50 years on, such innocent enjoyment would be regarded as a moral abomination. But the thing about this is that in 1971, which is 50 years ago, people did know that the black and white minstrels weren't innocent enjoyment there was a long campaign to get them off the, off the tv it, it had been running for well the, the campaign against racial discrimination had been running a petition for four years before, by 1971 they collected tens of thousands of signatures and you know i mean i, I grew up a, 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 around that time a little bit later than that but remember there being incredible opposition to the black and white minstrels being on TV. There was internal opposition from inside the BBC, the newspaper and TV pundits calling for the black and white minstrels to be stopped. And do you know what? All those people were right, weren't they? So was it woke nonsense to call for a racist TV show to be taken off the air? Were were those people who did that, were they woke idiots? I don't think they were. But foremost in the Hall of Shame this week is Roger Helmer. Yes, Roger Helmer. Remember him, the ex-UKIP MEP, that bloke who was photographed resting his eyes in the European Parliament. We've not heard from him for a while, have we? But this is what he has tweeted recently, and he's in the Hall of Shame for it. He tweeted, Now that ABBA seems to be on a comeback mission, maybe it's time to remember the lyrics of Fernando. I can see it in your eyes how proud you were to fight for freedom in this land. If I had to do the same again, I would, my friend, Fernando. And Roger Helmer writes at the end of that, for me, that says Brexit. If I had to do the same again, I would, my friend, Fernando. For me, that says Brexit. Do you know what ABBA lyrics say Brexit to me? It's these ABBA lyrics. Like a banger boomer boomerang, dumby dum dum, be dum be dum be dum, love is tune, you hum de hum hum. And why do they say Brexit to me? It's because while they might sound okay, while they're being sung in a really expensive production, you're not really taking in what's being said. When you do, they make no sense whatsoever, and they're absolutely, completely, and totally crap. Bang a boomerang by ABBA. It's a metaphor for Brexit. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Angleson. Thanks to my guest, John Kampfner. Thanks to our producer, Ellie Longman-Rood. Many thanks to all of you for listening. Episodes of the New European Podcast are released every Friday. If you enjoyed this one, why not subscribe and rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice? If you'd like to enjoy more podcasts from the New European, we have Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives. It's brilliant. It's available wherever you got this podcast. Check it out. And if you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, visit our new website. Join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. On social media, join our Facebook readers group, And you can follow The New European on Twitter, at The New European. Follow me on Twitter, at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. 
until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.